Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a 75 euro O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish independent. Terms and conditions apply. My mother was an amazing seamstress. Oh, the things she could do with a sewing machine was just awesome. Way back, my dad helped her to buy a mahogany cabinet with the Singer sewing machine in it. She got it from Singer's Corner in Cork. She was paying by the week for it. She upgraded the head of that machine over the years then, getting the newer models. They would trade in the old one. So my dad would then adapt this cabinet to take the new head. But she always said to me, you're the only one with an interest in sewing, so this is yours. But it was a square cabinet, but very ornate, beautifully ornate. And what you did was you opened the two doors like that and you lifted up the top and it sat on one of the doors. And on each door then there was little drawers that you'd have all your bits and bobs in. And you reached in then and you lifted out the head that way and you put the little flap down and put the head back down and there was your machine set up. And of course the pedal would be inside then. But that was gone. The last time I was in the house, I remember the bedrooms upstairs being locked. I remember the living room, sparse, very sparse. A huge amount of stuff she had Beautiful cut glass. I mean, I'm talking about the proper Waterford cut glass. Beautiful stuff. And I collected like over all the years. Lots of, lots of things. Do you think he just auctioned all that stuff off? I think he was taking it away and getting rid. Like, for instance, her back garden was absolutely amazing. It was always full of flowers and fruit trees and you name it. And he just leveled it and turned it in just nothing but grass and then took her spade and her shovels and her and just got rid of all them and stopped her going out to the one thing she adored was her garden you know and he stopped her going out having anything to do and he would say it's for her own benefit in case she fell or whatever but it wasn't that he her her home became her prison that's what it was and he dictated what went into the fridge. I never remember him allowing her to buy clothes. Isn't that strange? I don't remember her ever being able to buy clothes. She told me herself, she asked him one day, why don't you take me to the shop so I can buy my own bits and pieces like that? What food she wanted to put in the fridge herself. He called her piss-ridden. He said she was a piss-ridden old cow and he would not put something like that into his car. I mean, this is his mother. This is his own mother who, she was 85, just going on to 86 when she passed away. And 
you know, he showed her no respect whatsoever. He never did show her any respect. But you don't talk to an elderly lady like that, you know. And she was the kind of woman you could put a sack over her head and put a badge on it. And she was dressed. I mean, there's pictures of her there, look. A beautiful looking woman. Absolutely. Never wore makeup. Just a gorgeous, gorgeous woman. And, you know, a very pleasant, very pleasant person. God only knows, really, you know, how he terrorised her, you know, the effect he had on her life. He was scary. She'd always tried to protect him, you know. And he had isolated her from all of you guys. She protected him even from my dad. She told us, you don't tell your dad that the guards called here today. Don't tell your dad he did this or did that. We don't want to get him upset. Now, my dad wasn't a violent person. She wouldn't allow him chastise him. Now, they did spend a lot of money, I do know that. And it was at a time that there was no medical cards at all. There was nothing like that. That my dad had to work extra hard, and so did she. I mean, she she was at that sewing machine night and day. They would get the proper doctors, you know, to see him, and he would go through the, the regime of meeting these people, and they, they believed the next doctor they'd meet would be the one that would come up with the, the reason he was behaving the way he was, and so on. But... He's just evil. He's just evil. And you see, my mother couldn't accept that. You're listening to Beast, the murder of Nora Sheehan, a Crime World podcast. This is episode five. Juliana's mother passed away in 2011. It was probably for the best that she didn't live to see her eldest son, the man officially responsible for her care in her last years, being charged with murder in 2022. When his trial began this year, many people worried that a conviction for a killing that took place over 40 years before would be extremely difficult to secure. There had never been a case like it before. After weeks of pre-trial hearings, the jury was sworn in and the trial officially opened on July 13th at the Central Criminal Court in Dublin. The prosecution case rested on two types of evidence. The DNA sample collected from Nora Sheehan's vaginal swab and the trace evidence of fibres and paint flecks found on her body. Given the central importance of these forensic samples, it was no surprise that amongst those to testify in court were Sheila Willis and Maureen Smith from Forensic Science Ireland. They had examined the original evidence in 1981 and they had been responsible for its preservation too, a crucial role in drawing the picture of no long's guilt that the prosecution were now finally putting before a jury. So you were trying to establish, or what the police were trying to establish, was that the, this her body had been in the boot of that car. Well, they were trying to see were there links between No Long and that um, body. I mean, whether it was the boot of the car or not is a um, questionable issue, but that's a reasonable assumption based on the kind of materials that were recovered. And what was particular about the paint? Well, um, a lot of the paint 
were actually flakes from the car itself. And that of itself wouldn't um, be that significant because the most you can tell from car paint is that it's a particular make and model. So you'd, you'd, you'd be able to say it was a cadet of around that um, era. But in addition to the paint from the car, there was uh, what we would call household uh, paints, which are more um, sort of uh, random in nature. And the fact that there was household paints with the car paint actually pointed more towards that particular car. And in addition to the paint, there were small pieces of foam that we never got a a source from, and also quite a lot of um, tiny... um, metal uh, prills of the type that you might get from welding. And they were also common to the clothing and to the car. So how tiny are these little fragments of paint? Microsc- oh, the, the paint? Uh, microscopic. I mean, you, you, you could see that they're paint if you looked with the naked eye, but to get any kind of detail, you'd be talking about microscopic. And what hap- what for any paint information, you would look at as an edge-on slice. So you have the ability to slice it like a rasher and kind of look at the different layers, which give you the history of how something was painted. And again, that's a in a, in a car case, that's fixed for the different manufacturers. But for household paints, that's random because you might choose to do yellow today and put a green layer on it tomorrow or next year or whenever you paint so again. Like I wouldn't say it's like a fingerprint, but it's um, pointing towards um, it being characteristic of a particular material rather than it being uh, any other. house and over the years the walls were painted different colours and you you literally have a slice. That's right, yeah. You You more typically came across it in traffic accidents where, of course, you had collision and so you'd have the paint transferred in a collision. But you sometimes get it from people sitting in cars as well. But there was quite a lot in in that particular uh, case. I found it unusual that when I examined the sellotape lifts and, and the Petri dishes, um, that there were so many paint flakes in them. I mean, you couldn't miss them. That evidence was gathered before Noel Long came to our knowledge. Nothing, nothing had come into the lab from Noel Long when we had already recovered this. Later on, sources for the paint, obviously, uh, were found, but no source for some of the, some of the stuff, as Sheila had mentioned, like the red foam. Um, but again, that was quite distinctive and it wasn't something that I had actually come across before then. You know, we, we both looked at r- lots and lots of cases in our time and even at that stage, I'd looked at lots of cases. So you knew what types of material were familiar and it wasn't typical to come across small bits of uh, red foam. I should also say, in support of what Maureen is saying there, that the idea that we that they, that she had recovered the material before items from no long came in is always really reassuring because inevitably in the back of your own mind, never mind um, the court when it comes later, is the possibility that it might be contamination that you, and that you might have transferred in the course of interacting with the exhibits and so on. But all the material was secured and recovered before items came in from the suspect. The trace evidence had been available to police in 1981, but DNA evidence was not. It's only in the last couple of decades that DNA matching has been a possibility in legal cases here. And even then, the age of the sample in this particular case meant it wasn't exactly an ideal candidate for testing. But the tests were carried out nonetheless, and while scientists speak in terms of probabilities rather than certainties, the results seem to strengthen the case for no long's guilt.
There was no DNA profiling back in 1981, and it was very limited work that could be carried out on biological stains. I mean, certainly there was an, there was some work, but when the body was examined, and is, is, is the case, swabs are taken to see if there's any evidence of sexual assault. And in this case, um, I didn't do this particular end of it, but the swab was examined, um, evidence of semen found, um, and when a swab is examined... A swab is like a cotton bud, and you extract what's on the cotton bud, and it is, uh, if, if you like, made visible for uh, microscopic examination in much the same way as the fibres were examined in a glass sandwich. So the, the, ex, the extract from the swab, which contains the semen, is in a glass sandwich, and once it's in there, again, it's preserved. Now, it's, it's preserved, but it's also... Um, a bit degraded because of the treatment that it gets in order to be examined. Uh, so those um, samples were still in existence. And in 2008, sometime like that, the sample was, the, the, the glass slide, if you like, was broken up and the sample was scraped off um, and sent for DNA profiling. And the the figure that came back for the DNA profiling in terms of it, the significance or the rarity or whatever way you want to put it um, was much lower than people might be used to seeing in such cases and that's because of a the, maybe the amount that was there but also the condition it was in because it wasn't in perfect condition for profiling due to the fact that it had been um, it, that's that you know it was preserved for one thing, which was the the examination. It was being used for something else, which was DNA profiling, and therefore it wasn't um, in perfect condition. But it was still um, in a condition where they were able to obtain a limited profile, and that limited profile um, also matched that um, of no long. The combination of DNA and trace evidence is much stronger than one of those standing alone. It's almost like the evidence of state witnesses, like we saw in the Regency trial earlier this year. If you only have one piece of evidence to go on, it's much easier to sow doubt in someone's mind, to create that reasonable doubt that would preclude the possibility of a guilty verdict in a murder case. Having these two distinct planks supporting the case and each other is vital. I'm sure there are forensic scientists in the modern world who have never used a microscope, which is bizarre because um, there's a lot of useful information can be gained from all sorts of traces, as was evidence in this case. Mm-hmm. The, one of the, the, the valuable uh, points about trace evidence, such as paint and glass, is that um, it can tell a story about a timeline because it fall, if, if you come into contact with another fabric and fibres will transfer onto your clothing or paint onto your clothing or whatever. Um, As you walk around in your daily life, bulk of that falls off. So if you're found with a lot of something on your clothes, it is an indication that there was a recent contact before you stopped moving. Mm. Of course, in this case, because the body, because Nora Sheehan's um, body, of course, was um, left, there was no activity, so the, the material that was transferred was going to stay. It was possible to recover because the material wouldn't float away by itself. Like for instance, if Nolan had said, oh, I gave Nora Sheehan a lift a month ago, that wouldn't hold water based on the physical evidence that still remained in her clothes. So that's, that's um, if you like, a gift that DNA doesn't have. 
DNA tells a huge story, but trace evidence um, actually can be the pillars behind it. The combination is a fantastic and powerful um, thing, as opposed to any one evidence type. There's a bit of a tendency, I think, in the world in general, and scientists are not immune to think that, you know, there's one silver bullet that'll do everything. And actually, that's not the case. The, the strongest cases are the ones where there's multiplicity of evidence types or multiplicity of different um, sources of information that tell the story. Almost like in cases where, where that is, you know, evidence of CCTV, etc. It's strands that come together that's right. to form a rope. It's, exactly. it's a rope, not a chain. Hi, Juliana. How are you? Hi, girl. <laughs> All right. All good. Cloda has a little bit of news for you. Um, okay. Yeah, so yes. Go ahead, Cloda. So I was down at the court today, obviously, and I was checking with one of the other court reporters uh, to see if Donny was still there today, and she said he wasn't. Yeah. But I asked her about what happened on the stand yesterday, and basically she told us that there was a, an argument yesterday um, about his evidence. So basically, Donal gave a statement in 1981 that said he called up to the house the evening of the 6th of July to chat to Noel to arrange to go diving the next day, right? And when the next day came around, they made very specific arrangements as to where they were going to be meeting. I think it was the Speckled Door. Is that the name of the pub in, near Chapool Woods? Speckled Door is down in um, Gareth Town. Yeah, so they they they're meeting near there um, to go diving the next day. And in his original statement, he said that Noel showed up, but he was late. Right now, last Saturday, he was late. Yeah, he showed up. The next morning, he said that they were to go oh, diving. Of, of yeah. yeah, but he came forward on Saturday to give another statement. And in his new statement, he said that he came forward because he wanted to clear his conscience. He had concern for the Sheehan family. Um, and it was out of misguided loyalty that he originally said that Noel Long was late. In fact, he's come forward now to say that Noel Long didn't show up that day at all. They were expecting him to show up with the boat and they waited till two o'clock that day and he didn't show up at all. So he, it seems like he had given him some sort of alibi and has now come forward 42 years later to say, well, actually, I, I'm sorry for saying that it wasn't true. And it seems that their friendship has fizzled out. So I didn't want to say it to you over text. I kind of wanted to tell you. Um, I just... They'd be, they'd be thick as teeth because I always knew that Donny Boyd kind of looked up to Noel. But there was also an element of fear in Donny Boyd where Noel was concerned because Noel was known as being violent. You didn't get on the wrong side of Noel now. So Donny would have been afraid of him like, just stay at home and enjoy your, your weekend, won't you? We will. Thanks, Juliana, we will. you too. Bye. 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 Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm grand, guys. I'm just turning off the radio. How are you? 
Good. Good. Cla- Claude has been busy, busy now, so she's going to fill you in on what's been happening. Okay. So, as you know, last week, the jury was gone for two days while they there was a legal argument for the case to be halted, for the trial to be stopped. So that happened, basically they argued that there was a culpable delay of, you know, because it happened 42 years ago, but basically the judge denied it, um, said he, could, he he didn't agree with, he wasn't satisfied that there was. The trial went ahead, so it started back up again yesterday morning and we had evidence from Dr. Cassidy for the defence. So the, the prosecution have stopped, they're, they're finished with all their evidence, now it's the defence. Their evidence was Dr. Cassidy um, and she was saying that, now she's the former state pathologist, she, was, she did a review of the original autopsy that was done back in 90 or 81 and she concluded that she couldn't find a cause of death but she did say that, you know, what she couldn't conclude she was asphyxiated with, you know, hands right in the neck. She said it, she said it could be a possibility that she was either smothered with hand over her mouth or being pushed into a pillow or a bed mattress, something of that sort. And after that, again, the defence tried to get it stopped. The trial stopped again yesterday. He's trying every which way. Trying every which way. And what basically they said was trying to get it thrown out. They said that there's no intent there for murder, that she didn't prove there was intent at all. Um, so they come back and the judge disagreed again. But there seems to be, it looks to me like they're going to add the option of manslaughter for the jury to consider. He he mightn't do that, you see. what Sometimes what they do is they will let them out to see if they can come back with murder. And if they can't reach a majority verdict, they sometimes say to them, well, listen, go and consider manslaughter. Mm. Well, I couldn't go in there, Carolyn, and look at him. Yeah. Because that... You'd need a sick bucket around me because I'd, I'd be sick. Yeah, well, look, we can't blame you. Right, well, listen, we'll be in touch. Please, God. All See right. you. Have All a good right. afternoon. All right. All right. Thanks ever so much for the call, Nicola. Bye-bye. Bye, Claude. Bye. All the best. Bye-bye. After a great deal of legal argument and a torrent of evidence and counter-evidence, No Long's trial for the murder of Nora Sheehan concluded after three weeks on August the 4th. A jury of seven men and four women unanimously found Long guilty. He received a mandatory life sentence for murder. He was 74 years old. In a victim impact statement to the court, Katie Sheehan, Nora's granddaughter, spoke eloquently on behalf of her family on the grief and pain caused by Noel Long's actions all those years ago. She said her grandmother was a much-loved wife, mother, daughter, sister, aunt and friend. She was kind, compassionate and opinionated. She adored children and animals. Those connected to Nora think about her almost every day, she continued. Unfortunately, we have been unable to think about her many wonderful qualities very often. And the horrendous circumstances surrounding her death is what has occupied our thoughts these past 42 years. So many lives have been negatively impacted by this awful crime. But we would like to pay special mention to some of Nora's loved ones. 
We remember our father who died completely heartbroken four years after she was taken from him. He was affected hugely by the loss of our mother and really struggled in his final years, dying without any form of closure. From your three boys, to lose a mother at such young ages under any circumstances is incredibly difficult. But to learn that your vulnerable mother was taken advantage of, beaten, sexually assaulted and her dead body disposed of in such a horrific manner is something we have been unable to process. Our peace of mind was taken from us. Sleep hasn't come easy. Relationships have been strained. The happy moments these last few decades have been tainted with so much grief and sadness. We hope that we can now begin the process of dealing with what happened to our mother and go on to live the remainder of our lives at peace and begin to remember our mother for the quirky, feisty, glamorous mother she was. We hope you're at peace now, Mum. We never gave up hoping that one day we would get justice for you and we hope we have done you proud. For those who had participated in the case, from the original guardee who had investigated the case, to the scientists from Forensic Science Ireland who had worked on it, to the cold case detectives who had helped bring it to its conclusion, there was also great sense of relief that finally there was closure for Nora Sheehan and her family. How did you feel? Did you, you know, I know you compartmentalise everything, but the conviction of no long, like it's not every day case you worked on so long ago comes to a conclusion where you see a family leaving a courtroom in tears and with that sense of whatever it was, I don't know if relief is the right word, but sort of closure. Well, I, th- I think there's a satisfaction that that hard work that you put in uh, was useful at the end of the day. Um, I, again, I, I think it's, it is true to say that the scientists are a bit remote from the case and some people find that odd but certainly from my point of view there's a satisfaction in that, that the evidence was used you gave your evidence it was accepted by the jury which is really the ultimate test of it they accepted the evidence that you gave and the significance of it but I'd say I would still be a bit remote from the actual case I completely agree with that I, I, I would have had a sense of satisfaction that uh, there was a value in what we did because it was a case quite frankly that I always felt well, you know, we did a lot of work there. We had some valuable inputs and it was a shame that they were never put to use. So I was pleased in that sense. But I'd always feel quite remote. In fact, I saw it in the same way as I would any kind of piece of news. I wasn't um, particularly emotionally involved. I'm really happy for that family that they've got closure. But um, I would say it was satisfaction that, that what we did was useful and contributed to the case. I mean, the distance of time really is the standard, isn't it? The coldest case in Ireland. Yeah. It's a little bit disconcerting to open a file that you last saw 40-something years ago and have the guards tell you that it's known that we're not worried that you're going to die, but we just would like to take an affidavit anyway. I, I think I was comfortable enough with the quality of what was done, and that was reassuring as well. Um, I think maybe... If you ask me in the abstract how would I feel about looking back on a case, I'd be a bit kind of concerned. But having, having done it, I'd, I, I was happy. And I've had reason to look at other cases. And I think we were fairly um, careful about 
what we did and how we recorded things. I think um, I think one of the things is that pe- it, people, there was this kind of thing, oh, there are going to be loads of cold cases solved. That's not true because if the evidence is not gathered at the time, you don't have it. So the gathering of the evidence, be it the semen from the swabs, the, la- the paint, the fibres, if that hadn't been actually gathered and kept at the time, there would be no cold case. That's an interesting point. And it's also an interesting point that in this instance, um, there, was, um, I, there were items taken in from suspect at the time, whereas in a lot of cold cases, um, you're working on what you have from the victim or the scene, but not necessarily the suspect. So maybe the right things are not kept, uh, you know, because you just don't know. I leave the last word for now to Alan Bailey, a member of the Garda Cold Case Unit when it was set up in 2006. Cold case investigation is not that you go in and you look the file today and you go tomorrow and put your hand on, you know. I say, with all these cases, especially the likes of Long, you're only going to get one bite of it. You'd already been there with with Long and uh, if you don't do it right this time, you're not going to go back again because there's no no DPP who would stand over it. Because you've gone already. Yeah. You had your chance. You know what? You're coming back again to me now. At what stage does he shoot harassment? In one sense, it played against no long the fact the trial hadn't proceeded. If that trial had proceeded and you'd been found not guilty, well, you, you weren't going back no matter what DNA you had. But the fact the case never proceeded the trial meant you could go back again with your having built a, a further case and go back and charge him with it. But like I say, had he gone to trial and they stood up and said, well, what's the cause of death? And the case was thrown out. Well, that was the end of it. Having worked on the case as a cold case detective, I certainly was interested in, in the trial and the progress of the trial. And I was delighted to see early on that the fact that the evidence there was getting in, and I taught myself that the various challenges that would be mounted would have a lot of it excluded. But on a number of grounds, you know, maybe uh, where the exhibits were stored, how, how they were stored, you know, and uh, how they were preserved. But no, you could see all along that that evidence was was getting in and that was going to be vital. So I suppose in that respect, watching the trial, I was reasonably happy that there was going to be a good outcome. The the likes of Nora and all her victims like her, they're the reason this unit was set up. It's a high-profile case. We'll always have an audience. We'll always have somebody to listen and maybe move it on. But it's it's the... not forgotten case, but it's a case that maybe have been stepped back and uh, there's nobody there to take it up again. And it's for that that the cold case unit is set up for, I think. And what do you think, you know, these convictions mean? I think, first and foremost, to the secondary victims, just the families of the, of the deceased, it means quite a lot to them. It gives them closure, it tells them that their, their, their loved one has been, if you want to say, the revenge they have it, you know, but they certainly have closure insofar as you, you kill them. We knew all along that you killed them. We now know the courts have agreed with us and you're now serving your life in prison for that murder. So in that respect, it tell, sends a message to, to loved ones that the guardian are not forgetting your case. We're here and we are, we're a cold case unit. We look at these cases and then hopefully give you some closure and some satisfaction. Uh, to the perpetrators, I think it should send a very strong message. You may spend 20 or 30 years thinking you've got away with murder. We're always there and we will get to you. 
You've been listening to Beast, the murder of Nora Sheehan, a crime world podcast presented by me, Nicola Talent, and produced by Ian Mullaney and Claude Amini. This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.